Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings Books and Music. In today's episode, Bruce Wolpe in conversation with Sean Kelly to discuss Wolpe's new book, Trump's Australia. In the book, leading expert and US and Australian politics insider Wolpe reveals the many ways in which Australia was damaged by Donald Trump's presidency and ponders what could happen if Trump, or a Trump-like candidate, becomes US President in 2024. To introduce Wolpe and Sean Kelly, his readings event staffer, Nelson Matthews. Good evening, everybody. On behalf of readings, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on tonight and pay respects to their elders past and present. Please give a warm round of applause to the author of the night, Bruce Wolpe. To formally introduce Bruce, we have Sean Kelly, who writes for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and has a, a unique way of cutting through the, I was going to say the crap, um, I was going to say the, the, the spin and, and the noise around issues and getting to the heart of the matter. And I was just telling him before that the article he wrote this week exemplifies this. And the headline was, Philip Lowe is cactus, but truth be told, his fate is a sideshow, which I think is a brilliant headline and kind of summed up the, the humour Sean uses as well. Sean was also an advisor to Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard and wrote a book on Scott Morrison called The Game, A Portrait of Scott Morrison. So he's eminently qualified to have a conversation with Bruce. Please give him a warm welcome. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out on this absolutely freezing night. Bruce Wolpe is an incredibly accomplished guy. He's currently a senior fellow at the United States Study Centre, which is surprisingly hard to say. He worked with the Democrats in Congress during the first term of Barack Obama. He wrote a book about that. He wrote another book about his earlier stint working with Democrats in Congress. He is in the media, in print, television, radio, talking about American politics everywhere you look, not because he's a media tart, though the jury is out, uh, <laughs> but because he is in demand, because his knowledge is incredibly extensive and his mind is incredibly forensic. The other thing he did was work in Julia Gillard's Prime Minister's office, and that's how I got to know Bruce. And I won't waste too much time on personal reminiscences, but very briefly, the thing you need to know about Prime Minister's offices is that they're really wonderful places to work in the sense that you're inside and there's a whole bunch of people outside and many, many of them are coming to get you. And that sounds horrible, but the effect is that you link arms with your comrades and you stand firm against them. And that is an incredible feeling of solidarity, Labour or Liberal. And... They are also horrible places to work. And they are horrible places to work partly because those people come in to get you, but partly because when the people inside stop fighting those people outside for a moment, when, when things pause, they get bored and they turn their intentions inwards. And so Prime Minister's offices are places of, of grudge matches and uh, rivalries and turf wars and distrust and bitter hatreds. And I had been working for a couple of Prime Ministers by the time Bruce came along in, in 2012 and I was very accustomed to looking over my shoulder and, and seeing what knives were buried there. And then Bruce turned up and Bruce, I was introduced to Bruce and Bruce seemed nice. Uh, he, seemed, he seemed sincere. He seemed generous and kind, and this was very puzzling. And 
I did what every good political staffer would do, which was think, what the hell is this guy's game? Uh, you know, what is this utterly implausible facade that he's putting up? What malicious intent is he concealing? And with 99% of political staffers, with 99% of people in politics, that would be absolutely the right approach. But Bruce is the 1%. Bruce is the one in a million who knows his politics back to front, knows his policy as well, he is the real deal, but he's a good guy. He wants to do good in the world and he wants to do good for people, with one exception, and that exception is Donald Trump. <laughs> as you will find when you read this brilliant book. One more round of applause for Bruce, please. Sean has made Monday mornings a delight. With your column that appears in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, it is writing on a calibre and with a, a level of inquisition of issues, a real stress test of issues that is just fantastic. It's, a, it's just always a pleasure to read you. It gets the week off to the best start. Uh, when Sean talks about people coming after you, that was his great attribute in the office that I saw. Well, he had many great attributes, but one that I was just stayed with me was, you knew what was coming. You, you had the best over-the-horizon radar of anyone I know in politics to see what is coming and then, okay, what do we do about it? How do we handle it? I've never seen anyone do it any better. Uh, when I was writing this book, I had the game in my head. Uh, the game was my gyroscope of quality, intellectual rigor, and writing style, writing style. And I, did, I can't match your writing style. I haven't. But it was a guide to me. And so if, if the book succeeds, it'll be because it's more like in that quality than another book. Okay. We're, we're okay. done? Okay, great, we're done. Great. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> thank you, Bruce. That was very, very kind. This book is great. Uh, I did not want to read a book about Donald Trump. I didn't want to write a book about Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I, really did, I really did burn through it when, when I was sent a copy. and It was, it was fantastic and it, and it is terrifying. And one of the things it does brilliantly is remind you, because you forget more than you think. It reminds you of exactly what Trump was like, of the strange syntax he uses, of the, of the disturbing things he says. One of the things Bruce did, and he writes this in the book, is that in the first 30 days of Donald Trump's presidency, he spent every day writing down a list of Donald Trump's traits. Is that, is that how you came to write this book? I did that because I was just so repulsed by what I was seeing. We've never seen anyone in public life who has these qualities and someone who can defy gravity by exercising those qualities. Anybody, a senator in Canberra has his hands in bad places and he's gone in 24 hours. A president can be impeached twice and he's running for re-election. He's under indictment and he may be able to win and he may be able to serve from jail. I mean, where are we? We're kind of obsessed with him and, and he's, he's not obsessed with you, I can assure you that. Every morning we wake up to the news. The news cycle is it comes in from the United States. So the 6 a.m., 7 a.m. news is mostly out of the U.S. Uh, when Trump got the nomination and when he was elected and he served for four years, we wake up every morning and say, what the hell did he do last night? And what did he say on Twitter? And so he takes us in. And uh, what I wanted to do was examine what he would do if he came back at a second term. Most presidents, when they lose an election, they concede the election. And then they say, I'll see you, sayonara, shalom, and go off to another life, not Trump. This election was stolen. He, he deserves to have it back. He will do anything to get it back. And so he's still in the game. So the issue is, what does that mean for Australia? Because we already had some effects from a Trump presidency in the first term. What does it mean in the second term? So let's 
go back a step because the book in a sense is is a hypothetical, right? Yes. It's, it's if he wins. Yes. How likely is that victory? Uh, I think he's f- more than 50% likely to get the nomination from the Republican Party and less, uh, slightly less than 50% to win the election. Very competitive position. And among the Republicans, he is the leading candidate. He has 50% plus of the Republican voters. His nearest competitor, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is sort of a Trumpist in policy, but without the baggage and without the psychological infirmities, he's still 20, 30 points behind him. And the, and the reason that that is so is, first, Trump has no shame in anything that he does. He never concedes. He never admits defeat. He never admits. He never apologizes. And so when he's indicted for something or someone catches him in something, he says, the reason this is happening is because the agencies of government, uh, weaponization was a big word in Canberra over the past two weeks. So what the Democrats have done is weaponize the Department of Justice to indict me. And what it means on deeper levels is the Democratic president, Joe Biden, has instructed his Democratic attorney general, uh, Merrick Garland, to run his Democratic Justice Department to indict him in order to take him out and drive him off the ballot. Now, in in other countries where a president actually would do that, you'd say that's a banana republic. And so so the banana republic theory is now taking hold among Republicans. Mm -hmm. And that's why every Republican uh, competitor to him to get the nomination has bought into that because if they don't buy into it, they get his people angry and his people will not vote for them in either the primary or the election. So he has cornered the market among Republican leaders for this. But he has a deeper thing, and I have a couple notes. This is what he's saying on the campaign trail. He said this in two rallies last weekend, Iowa and one other place. But it was just very interesting, and I thought the formulation, and as a political communicator, I think you'll really enjoy this. He says, in the end, they're not coming after me, they're coming after you. So I represent you, they're coming after me in order to take you out and everything that you want and everything that I've stood for, America first and jobs here and immigrants have to go and getting out of isolationism and protection, all that stuff, they're coming after you. Either we have a deep state or we have a democracy. Either the deep state destroys America or we destroy the deep state. This is the final battle. These are biblical terms. Uh, we, this is the final battle. And at 78, I really hope it is the final battle. <laughs> this is the final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. This is what he tells his people. It, everyone says, he, he doesn't hide anything. It's not like, he doesn't dog whistle. He, he hits you with a sledgehammer. I mean, you say in your book, he's the most honest president America's ever had. I said he's the most ruthlessly honest president that America's <laughs> ever had. And I get hell for that because he's lied 30,000 times in the first term. The Washington Post checked it. He has 30,000 lies. So why is he ruthlessly honest? Because he delivers on all the things that he says. He so, says, I, I want to stop the immigrants. I want to withdraw from the wars. I want to kick over NATO. I want to destroy the United Nations. I want to bomb Iran. You know, Iran. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, have love letters with Kim Jong-un. His people believe he has delivered for them. Trump the first time was scary. Yeah. What will have changed the second time? What has he learned? Vengeance. In the first term, he couldn't accomplish everything he wanted because he had some people around him who had some form of guardrails that protected him from doing some things. He was uh, within an hour of signing a piece of paper, according to Bob Woodward, of signing a piece of paper on his desk, which would have uh, immediately withdrawn all the U.S. troops in South Korea. Someone pulled that letter from the desk and he never was able to sign it. And that's just a, a small atrocity. There were atrocities committed every day. But there were people, and at the end, when this, the stress was really on, when he said this election was stolen, it belongs to me, 
we know it was rigged in Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, and it needs to be overturned in those states. Well, when he tried to execute that plan, his attorney general would not go along that way. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, he called his counterpart in China and said, you're seeing things in the United States. It's not a pretext to attack you. And he railed against his own chief of staff who wouldn't deliver the goods. So he, he's learned who's for him and who's against him. And he's never going to appoint anyone like John Kelly as chief of staff or Milley as head of the armed forces of the United States or an attorney general who doesn't give him complete fealty. And the purpose of, of his vengeance is to absolutely expunge all opposition to him. And in, in what, so there's, there are policy ramifications of what it means, what's he going to stand for that Australia has to deal with, but there's also a democracy dimension to this about what happens to a country that undergoes that kind of stress. And what do you think happens? I think if he's reelected in 2024, all the fears that I have are much closer to being realized than if he's defeated. Can I ask you, what's, what's the top fear there? What's the, what's the doomsday scenario? Well, you would want to see characteristics of what a, a loss of American democracy is. What if Trump decides to send the National Guard into the streets of American cities because he wants to restore law and order? What if Congress passes legislation and he says, I'm not following this legislation? What if the Supreme Court issues rulings and uh, he says, I'm not going to follow those rulings? So that sort of order of magnitude of disobeying laws, rules, norms, A, has never been done, and B, I have no doubt that he intends to do it. Jonathan Swan of Axios, who's a fantastic journalist who now writes for the New York Times, last year broke the story that Trump has a game plan of purging the public service at every level of people who are not loyal to Trump. So you won't have people in the Environmental Protection Agency trying to slow walk, you know, drilling in downtown Denver, you know, that sort of stuff. It's a terrible result for most people in America. Yeah, it's great for, but it's great for Kim Jong-un and it's great for right. Xi and it's great for Putin. And what about us? What about, what's, what's the best case scenario for us? Well, the issue is, does, does the loss of democracy or even the pressures that we've seen to date, will Australia be hurt by that? And the answer is no. As I was writing the book, I realized I suddenly had, a hap I had two endings. I had a happy ending on my hands, which is Australian democracy is strong, vibrant, will not be defeated by Donald Trump, will survive Donald Trump, even under the worst circumstances. So that is a, a comforting thing, and we can discuss the elements of that that make that happen. On the other hand, there is an existential question posed by if Trump's excesses succeed, truly succeed, and uh, along the lines that I was saying about lawlessness out of the Oval Office. And that is that if the United States is no longer a democracy, what is the basis of our alliance with the United States? It's based on common values. We care about liberty. We care about freedom. We care about human rights. We care about human dignity. We want to do, you know, the right. We believe in international institutions, the architecture that was set up after World War II for peace, prosperity, security. What if he pulls out, what if he des destroys NATO, pulls out of the United Nations? So. Why should Australia be in an alliance with a country that has reneged on its democracy? I call that an existential question on the relationship. And the point of writing it, aside from a dark moment of having fun, is that I want people to think about that. I think the timing of this book is good. We're a good 18 months away from the election. Thank goodness he was indicted last week. It really helped attention to the book. It's great. <laughs> uh, and it's better to be proactive in 2024 in thinking about this, these issues than being reactive in 2025. So actually, I think there are issues for the political class. 
I think I'm with my base, the political class here at Readings in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> I think in other countries that people should go through similar exercise, in France, in Germany, in the United Kingdom, work through these issues. Let's talk about what that looks like. What is being ready in Australia? So, I mean, there are the people in, in this room and then there are the people in Canberra and the entire foreign policy establishment. Well, what I, should they be doing I th- to prepare? I think, I, think, I think politicians start talking about issues if, if their people are talking about issues, if yeah. something's on their mind. And so those discussions, but also people are aware of this. And I think there's just a great wariness, but without putting a tangible timeline, you know, it's not imminent. Mm. I think it's in people's heads. So let's just take foreign policy, for example. What's Trump going to do in Asia? He wants a relationship with Xi. Uh, What does that mean? What does that mean for Taiwan? Is he going to engineer a deal that he wins on trade with China, which he desperately wants? And China says, oh, that's fine, but we really want Taiwan. And maybe... That looks tradable to me. Or AUKUS. China says, you know, we don't really like AUKUS. It's a real irritant to us. It's a threat to us. So maybe AUKUS becomes, sinks in the level of priorities. I talked to about two dozen former officials, Americans and Australians, both parties. I want to hear their candid views from, the, from experience. And that's what I did. The consensus was Australia should build its foreign policy capacity now and projected across the region, which is exactly what Prime Minister Albanese and Penny Wong are doing, if you look at their pattern of activity over the year. So the point is, have deeper relations with more countries, more foreign aid, more engagement with people, more cultural pro- soft power, you know, for everything from AFL to culture. Have an Australian web of engagement with Asia that stands independently of whether we're aligned with the United States or not aligned with the United States. And that is underway, and it's very commendable. So just double down on it. And then in Washington, it's not just the White House, it's the Congress. Australia has an excellent relationship throughout Congress. It is fully bipartisan. I I think the relationship with Australia is the least troubled of any nation, and I include Israel in in making that statement, as far as Washington is concerned. So double down on that, too. Increase the lobbying presence. Increase the presence with the business community, which has such an investment here, so these things because their investments are at stake. If Australia gets cold, they'll have to navigate that too. So there's stuff to do. So there's stuff to do, but they've made a reasonable start. Mm -hmm. They've made a very good start. Here's a complication. Anthony Albanese has been pretty harsh on Donald Trump in the past. And it seems to me there there are two difficult facets to that. One is how does the Prime Minister pivot in some way without causing himself too much domestic embarrassment. Uh, He wears a Scott Morrison mask when he goes to see him. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There's one fun paragraph in my book where I put myself in Donald Trump's head thinking about Anthony Albanese, and it it goes sort of like this. You don't look like a prime minister. I don't like your glasses. Suits are bad. Hair's bad. Voice is bad. You come from poverty, public housing. You're a Marxist. You're a socialist. Labor unions. I hate labor unions. Your program is Joe Biden's program. Now, what do we want to talk about? I think it's going to be pretty rough. Okay. Yeah. What can he do? There's no doubt that Albanese would, as um, the absolute political professional that he is, one thing that's great in politics is be underestimated. And boy, has he been underestimated. Mm. And I mean, he's was, he was been in parliament for 25 years. He knows all the mores. He knows how to get things done. He ha- and he loves the institutions of democracy that we have. So he knows, as the prime minister, it is his responsibility for the safeguarding of Australian interests to deal straight with the president and find as much of a working relationship as he can. So he will come into that. 
but the point is that Trump, before he talks with Albanese, will be briefed on everything that Albanese said about how horrific the insurrection on the Capitol was, and uh, Scott Morrison didn't say that, how horrific gun violence is, and how horrific uh, the anti-abortion policies of, of Trump. He says, oh, those are my three Supreme Court justices that overturned Roe v. Wade, and this weekend is the first anniversary of overturning Roe v. Wade, and tens of millions of American women are without those services. The stress on Australia's democracy is when something terrible happens in America, we hear it here, and then we say, oh my God, is it going to happen here? And the answer is no, uh, and that's because of the safeguards we have. So two, two final questions, then we'll throw it open to, okay. to others. Can you say a little bit more about those guardrails? Yes, there are several, and you know them, but we have to really be vigilant about them. Compulsory voting. It is the absolute bedrock of Australian democracy. Experts like uh, E.J. Dion of the Washington Post have looked around the world because America is in need of a strengthening of democracy in its voting system and found that Australia, this is a book last year, it's called 100% Democracy. Australia is the gold standard of democracies in the world. And what compulsory voting means is you're going to land center left or center right. Gun extremists, abortion extremists, trans extremists are not going to capture an election because it's the great middle that ultimately votes. That washes extremism out of the, out of the system. Um, second, the Australian Election Commission enforces a, really a non-political approach. There's no gerrymandering of electorates. It really is they look at the population, they make shifts and so forth. They count the votes. Two things about counting the votes. In America, vote counting is really contingent in a lot of states, conservative states, on race. When you look at the, fighting, the fight on voting rights in the United States, it's about Georgia passing a law that says, well, we're limiting the number of polling places in Atlanta, where you know who lives. You can't give anyone water when they're standing in line to vote. Limit the number of drop boxes where you can put your early ballots in. Well, we know what that's all about. Here, people of color, First Nations people, Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islanders, they vote on the same terms that you and I vote. And that can't be taken away. So that is a very healthy aspect of this democracy and it's to be understood. Third, we have the Westminster system. There can't be a blow-in as prime minister like Donald Trump. Uh, Clive Palmer will never be prime minister. Pauline Hanson will never be prime minister. Twiggy Forrest cannot be prime minister. And, and the reason is the prime minister is decided by the person who leads the majority in the House of Representatives. That means you've got to be in the House of Representatives. And guess what? The cabinet also comes out of the House of Representatives. You can't appoint some jerk from Texas to run you know, the energy department. And, and that means that those people come with the same institutional knowledge to varying degrees that the prime minister... That, so the government has a character. And so those things in particular... Or, there are some other things. Justices to the high court, and justices are not confirmed by the Senate, uh, where the senators say, uh, what's your position on abortion? And the same goes with appointments to the Reserve Bank, which sets, of course, interest rate policies. And I was really pleased that in the review that Jim Chalmers did, he buried the, in, the interest rate decision mechanism farther down in the RBA. It's no longer at the board level, which consists of appointees up by the treasurer. Mm. And it was the treasurer who points to the RBA, the uh, President Trump tried to fire the head of the Federal Reserve Bank several times, and he came that close. And that's a politicization. What does Trump want? Lower interest rates. What do lower interest rates do? In, in good times, it's fine, but in bad times, it could mean hyperinflation. You want to wash out politicization from the system, and Australia does that. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I'm going to cut myself out now, and do people have questions? Thanks very much, Bruce. Um, fascinating. Uh, 
Uh, Trump, of course, is enabled by 74 million people that voted for him. Um, and they can't all be disenfranchised people from the Midwest. Can you paint a psychological, perhaps circumstantial profile of a Trump supporter and even relate that to Trump supporters here, which I find rather inexplicable. Uh, yeah, uh, the latter question, I mean, part of the echo chamber is um, Nazis march in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Nazis are here in uh, Parliament House and uh, on Spring Street. The, at the height of the pandemic, uh, gallows are paraded through the streets of Melbourne, and gallows were paraded outside the Capitol and hang Mike Pence. So that is the echo chamber, and those people are here. The base Trump voter is principally composed of non-college educated white men, and then the people who hang around them. And that's about, you know, 35, 40% of the country. And then, then others who love the idea of someone coming into Washington, kicking over the table, getting rid of all these, you know, the bureaucrats and everyone, everyone who gums up the works and just makes America, you know, tougher to govern and everything, they love that. I mean, that's, he's a hero in that regard. So why not try it? Why not try it? Uh, but the uh, interesting thing, as you said, he got over 70 million votes in the election. And my, my feeling at, at the time in 2020 was if COVID had not occurred, he would have been reelected. First, that really hurt the economy. But secondly, a, a million Americans, a million died. And people knew enough in their heads that he was not, he was horrible in uh, his public health policy and how he educated uh, Leslie's here, uh, my wife, and she wrote the chapter in the book on the pandemic, Trump in Australia. And uh, so buy the book. If only you buy the book for that chapter, please do. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Readings. I'm really heartened by your optimism for Australia. Yes. I want to also be optimistic if Trump is re-elected. Oh, um, no. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to imagine, but it's also... No. As you say, entirely plausible. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to AUKUS, there's a lot that we know about that relationship. Submarines has obviously been, you know, the sort of big high-profile coverage. But there's also aspects around systems interoperability, around intelligence sharing and so on. Yes. Um, what are your concerns if Trump is re-elected for the AUKUS relationship? Well, since he has classified documents in his possession, <laughs> we'll show them to anybody. I mean, I'm not worried about the intelligence sharing. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> I think he'll look at AUKUS as a commercial deal. And he says, does it flow to the United States? Are we getting enough of the jobs? Are we getting enough of the contracts? Is the, where's the money going? And I think he wants to, uh, I think that's how he'll look at that, plus what China has to say about it, I think will be really determinative on AUKUS, yeah. Did you consider uh, a scenario, do you think there's a possibility of a civil war in the US? A lot of people are worried about that. I don't know about civil war because that's uh, a level of systemic violence that it happened once and uh, there's been nothing like it since. I think there's absolutely a possibility of more violence, political violence in places around the country you might recall a year and a half before the assault on the Capitol, the attack on the Capitol, men with long guns came to the Capitol in Michigan, the State House, uh, to intimidate it from passing some legislation. I think we'll see more of that. And then it's just one step from using those weapons. The people who were convicted, there have been 700 convictions of those who attacked the Capitol, and including the major groups like the Proud Boys. And what the testimony and evidence showed was they had every intention of unleashing violence to keep Trump in office. And so, yeah, it's a, a clear and present danger. 
in regards to your term that Australia is a golden standard for democracy. Okay. And I would say that we are nowhere near a democracy. And I guess in terms, if I could bring up a couple of points in terms of the way the Labour and the Liberal government treat the refugees and then also the way we treat our Indigenous people, we have the highest, like Indigenous people, the highest amount of people in jail. So how would you say that Australia is a democracy when we have things like that. I think you're right in everything that you say as far as the conditions that people are facing and so forth, but uh, the analysis was relative to the rest of the world the way it is today. So I don't mean it to be a false gold medal I'm going to paint on, Sean, to do that. So yes, you're right. But on the, on the issues particularly of where we're going on the debate on The Voice and this echo chamber, Trump push, pushes racial buttons all the time. He took out an ad as a businessman in New York, the Central Park Five. They were arrested and believed that they had uh, gang-raped a woman and so forth. They were innocent. Years later, it was shown. He took out an ad in the New York newspaper saying they should be given the death penalty. So he pushes, he pushes these buttons, and these buttons are effective. We hear these buttons being pushed in Australia. And so I think it's really essential before the 2024 election that the voice come into effect so that the community has a belief in addressing this issue of racial equity and having a confident assertion of the country's destiny in having an inclusive, a more inclusive society and a fairer society. So I think the voice is, is very important in this equation. And I also think there was one columnist for a newspaper I won't name uh, who said, if you think that the rest of the world cares about whether we pass the voice, that's just nothing. He's dead wrong. The rest of the world is looking at this because, I mean, at base, the question is, has Australia ever given up on the white Australia policy? If the voice is defeated, those, those are, that's a terrible, raw thing to say. I think that's how people will read it. I think people will wonder about the Australians at the Olympics in Paris. You know, I, I, it's going to have a lot of collateral effects, which is why we have to pass it, and I think we will pass it, and we should pass it. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming out. Thank you, Bruce, for being fascinating as always. Bruce's book is fascinating. He will be selling books. He will be signing books. It's better with a martini, frankly. (laughs) That's true. Uh, I can attest to that. Um, Thank you very much, everybody. Please give Bruce a round of applause. Trump's Australia is available from all reading stores and at our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and those to come. Thank you.